7th, 2021, and it's just gorgeous in Arizona. We're going to be in the high 70s today. Spring is definitely springing in the air, and I have packed in a lot of Kleenex uh, as the result as my allergies have gone crazy. Um, but it's so wonderful to be here. Two little announcements that I just want to make today. I know that they're going to be announced in the chat, but I also want to make them on the 14th of March in the United States. I think Canada too, but I'm just going to speak for the United States. On the 14th of March, which is a Sunday, all of the meetings in the Scottsdale cycle, that's Sunday through Thursday, our regular meetings, and then Saturday, everything will start one hour later, unless you are in the state of Arizona. So if you're in the state of Arizona, everything will start the same time. Otherwise, it will be one hour later. The reason being, Arizona does not recognize daylight savings time. So everything will be one hour later. As you spring forward, we don't. So we will effectively be on Pacific time until next November. One other little housekeeping thing. Next week we are here, the week after we are here, the week after that, the 19th, 20th and 21st of March, we will be, I will be doing a SOAR 8 convention and that's in out of Nashville, Tennessee. It's Zoom, but it's just emanating out of Tennessee. We will post, when I get them, I, I may have passed them on to Betty, I'm not sure, but we'll post the passwords, we'll post the things so you can join us. So that will be the 19th, 20th, and 21st of March. So that Saturday, we will not be meeting. Okay, let's talk. We have looked at step nine in the last couple of weeks. Step nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I got a phone call this week from a woman and she told me she was not gonna make amends to this person, this person, and this person. She didn't wanna do it because she felt that they had harmed her a lot more than she had ever harmed them. And she was unwilling to do that. And what we wanna remember over and over again, because this is vital to our survival, is if we are unwilling to make these amends, we are not going to recover. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but it's not going to happen. We're not going to recover. There are four impediments to God that Sam Shoemaker had in his book, Twice Ministered, which is not an AA book, but I'm just telling you where they came from since this is something that does come up in the Q&A quite often. The first one being a resentment that you will not let go of, that's step four. The second one being a secret that you will not tell, step five. The third one being a harmful thrill that you will not stop, lying, cheating, manipulating, something, backstabbing, something like that. That's step six and seven, and then a restitution that you will not make. Now, some restitutions cannot be made or should not be made, and we have discussed those in the last couple of weeks. But when you will not make one, that is very, very dangerous. And we want to remind ourselves that that is self-will run riot. When I will not make a restitution and amends, that is self-will run riot. Okay, now let's talk about, um, let's talk about these promises. And, you know, we come in and we have a rather healthy skepticism of things. And there is something in us, something that is born in us. There is something that was born in me. I don't know if it was born in you. It was definitely born in me. I feared dying, but there was one thing I feared much more than dying. I feared living. 
I didn't know how to live. I didn't really know how to be happy. When I look back at the first decades of my life, there were periods when I was happy. Usually the happiness would come because I was reveling in the Cubs or reveling in some sports team, or maybe I had just um, successfully character assassinated somebody, or perhaps there was something that did go my way. Maybe I passed the test that I didn't think I was going to pass, or maybe something fortunate did happen for me. Because at times, there were times when I would be happy but these times were very short-lived and I have a mind that tends to catastrophize. I have a mind that tends to see the worst. I can look at something and the immediate reaction that I will have is panic, is fear. And this reared its ugly head many, 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 many times in my life. And I just, um, when I was just doing some inventory on the, the relationship that I'm now out of, my last relationship, I found that there were a lot of fears that I had. A lot of bedroom issues scared me. A lot of non-bedroom issues scared me because I have a nature that is by its design, by its, by its, uh, um, by its design, a fearful nature. I, I can't imagine some of my friends, they would go into life and they would say, I'm going to go to the university of whatever, or I'm going to get that girl to go out with me. And they would go for it and they would be successful. I seldom understood that because I knew in my mind, I just knew in my mind that this darn eating disorder was going to rear its ugly head and it was going to pull the rug out from under me. And many, many times in my life, I failed to dream. I didn't dare to dream. Like all of us, I have had tremendous hurt in my life. Like all of us, I didn't come in here on a roll. Like all of us, I have been disappointed in my life many, many times. And so when people would point to these promises, I remained very highly skeptical. And then there were the people who told me over and over again in my life that if I just lost weight, everything would be okay. And, you know, I had lost weight at different times through dieting. I had lost weight at different times uh, by sheer willpower dieting. And you know what? Things kind of sucked because I needed that effect. And what is the effect? If you're new, Dr. Silkworth describes it in the doctor's opinion, that effect is that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. And when I would eat certain foods, those foods would do something for me, not to me, for me, that nothing else would do. And they would change <clears throat> excuse me, they would change my perception of reality instantly. When I would eat a Snickers bar, something would happen in my mind that altered the reality that I was looking at. Did you know that addicts seldom become psychotic delusional? What is psychotic delusional? Psychotic delusional is a condition. It's a mental illness, obviously. It's permanent. There's no coming back from it. But psychotic delusional means that the brain of an individual looks around at the reality of the world and they just can't handle what they're seeing. So something as a, it's almost like a defense mechanism. The brain will flip into an alternative reality, a psychotic delusional alternative reality that a lot of these people will live in and they don't come back from that. Did you know that alcoholics, drug addicts, compulsive overeaters almost never become psychotic delusional? And the reason is my brain and apparently yours too <laughs> knows a way for it to change that reality. And I know I don't want to get into outside issues here of psychology and psychiatry, but I'm just, I, I probably 
I probably overstated it. Uh, but in, in deference to the traditions, let's just stay with the big book. Candy did something for me. Flour did something for me. In my case, cheeses, dairy did something for me that they don't do for the normal temperate eater. And that is they would give me this instant sense of ease and comfort. And it felt fantastic. And I loved it. What manner of insanity would cause a human being to raise their hand against themselves and destroy everything in their life? What would a person have to be possessed with to take decades and decades of their life and waste them in the food? And the only thing that we can come up with is we are searching for that effect. We are searching for that sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. And so we come in here and we don't normally look to cure or not cure, normally look to relieve other areas of our life. We're just kind of looking for that diet. We're just kind of looking for a way maybe not to eat quite so much. And then we're accosted with at the very beginning of our careers that half measures availed us nothing. See, if I could have bargained for half a recovery by doing half the work, I stupidly probably would have settled for it because I didn't know if I deserved a full recovery. And what I found out before we get into these promises at the bottom of 83, what I found out is that I was broken, not just in the area of the physical allergy and the twist of the mind that condemned me to a life of eating against my will and taking decades of my life and wasting them. But I was afflicted with other maladies as well. Like I couldn't be myself. I couldn't be who I was. I sought to be one step ahead of you so that if you thought I should say yes, I would say yes. And if you thought I should say no, I would say no, because I didn't want you to abandon me. I didn't want you to hurt me. I had been rejected summarily by the world for my weight for as far back as I can possibly remember. I have been afflicted with an illness of the mind and an illness of the body to the point where there has never been a day, ever, ever, ever been a day until recovery where my weight wasn't the number one topic du jour, the topic of the day. My parents seldom spoke to each other in a civil way. They seldom were nice to each other that they, but they would commiserate often about, oh my God, what are we going to do about his weight? Oh my God, how are we going to stop him from eating so much? And they never could. And they both went to God with conversations on their lips with me in the waning moments of their life that were begging me to stay on a diet, not to eat so much so that I wouldn't have to be alone for the rest of my life and I could have a good life. Independently of one another, that is how they both went to God. The last conversations I had with my mother and the last conversation I had with my father was on this very topic. And so, of course, I remained skeptical. Of course, I thought that life was to suffer. Now, I'm not going to tell you that life is a bowl of cherries after 22 years of recovery. There are things in my life, certainly, that I wish were different. But with that in mind, let me assure you that today... I am in many, many ways, not just, not just recovered, not cured, not just recovered from an eating disorder, 
but I am for the first time in my entire life. I believe the man, the person that God intended me to be. I have the freedom to walk around without the guilt, the shame, and the remorse of, oh my God, who's going to see what I ate yesterday? Oh my God, who's going to see where I'm coming out of today? Oh my God, who do I owe money to? Oh my God, what lies have I told that are going to come back and bite me in the bottom? Let's look at page 83. And with all the skepticism that I've had in my life, let me walk you through some of these or all these promises today. And let me show you how they have come true in my life. And by explaining that, maybe you'll take a brighter look at some of them in yours. If you're not at step nine yet, if you're not at this juncture yet, and you hopefully will be, they will come true for you. The bottom of page 83, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. Now let's stop right there. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, that means with great detail, leaving no stone unturned, unperfect, but excellent in the work that I've done. The only step I have to do perfectly is step one, but I have to give it everything I have to be as good as I can be. And I have to clean up my life because there's more going on here than just eating Snickers bars. There's more going on here than meets the food situation. There's more going on here because I am by my nature a liar and I am by my nature a manipulator and I am by my nature a person who sees the worst in myself and I look up at people or down at people and I seldom ever could look at people in the disease. And that's one of the gifts of the disease is I can look somebody in the eye and I can see their humanity and I can see my own in them. They are me and I am them. Maybe we're different. Maybe they're female. Maybe they're male. Maybe they're rich. They're black. They're, they're green. They're blue. They're purple. Maybe they're whatever it is that they are. But there is something about them that is identifiable to myself if I am just going to look hard enough. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I don't even have the time to tell you how free this disease has made me. I had a sponsor years ago in Chicago. And he was a great big guy and he could be very intimidating. And he would often come up to me and say, are you out of, he'd poke his finger in my chest. He'd say, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Because I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room. I came in, I was 24 years old. He'd say, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas? That's how he used to talk. And then he would say to me, here's the litmus test, kid. If everything you said today, everywhere you went today, everything that went in and out of your mouth, food and words and everything, everywhere you went was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because if you're not, he would grovel. He would say, if you're not, gravel, not gravel. He would say, if you're not, that means you're in the damn disease. My life today is an open book. I don't owe any money. I haven't written bad checks. I lied when the truth would have been better. I hid 
and wasted decades of my life sitting in front of a television set with food that I didn't have the money to buy. That money should have gone to the landlord. That money should have gone to the phone company, the electric company. That money should have gone to pay back the people that I had written bad checks to. But I used it for food because I couldn't put together two hours of abstinence. I couldn't live with the food and I couldn't live without the food. And it would be a Friday night and my food would get awful salty. And it would be a Friday night and my friends would be at bars. We were in our early, early 20s and they'd be picking up girls and dancing with girls in the bars. And I wanted to be able to do that, but I knew that that would be a waste of time. None of those girls were gonna look at me. I was 400 pounds, 500 pounds. What girl was gonna look at me? And I would be on home on a Friday night watching Love American Style or The Love Boat. And I'd have a bunch of food and I'd say to myself, I don't know why I would say this to myself, but I'd say, I'm not going to eat all of this tonight. And I would start to eat the ice cream or I would start to eat the frozen pizza or I would start to eat the chips or whatever it is I would start to eat. And the tears would be rolling down my face because I knew I couldn't stop. And I'd be screaming at myself inside, stop. Stop, stop. And I couldn't. And as the allergy, that craving would surge through my body, I would get up and spend more money that wasn't mine on more food that I didn't want to eat and destroying myself. I wanted to go north, but I was going south. And I wanted to be part of life and I kept being part of death. And I wanted to be like them. I wanted to look like them. I wanted the idea in my mind that I could dream and I could hold a girl's hand or I could have a good life. And I kept eating more and more and more. It says here we will... We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I found that the shackles of this disease are too soft to be felt until they are too hard to break. I am free today, free to make my own life with this recovery as being job one, that's a terrible sentence that wasn't constructed well. I am free to put my recovery first. And when I put my recovery first, everything else in my life elevates and it gets better. It gets better. And I'm free to walk down the street and not fear who I'm going to see. I don't have to fear what's in my grocery cart. I don't have to fear what you're seeing me buy at the store. I don't have to fear who I'm going to run into. That's freedom. And I don't have to beat myself unmercifully for what I ate yesterday or where I went yesterday or the lie I told yesterday. And I don't have to be part of the isolated population. I can be a person among people. I can look people in the eye and I can know I owe you no money. I've not lied to you. I've not hurt you. I've not done anything to you that is in any way, shape, or form something that I am ashamed of. Now, I might say something that offends you. I hope I don't. But if I do, we have a way, step nine, of making an amends where I can apologize. And if you bring it to my attention and you say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really offended by what you said, I will humble myself and I will say, 
you know, I didn't mean it to be offensive, but if it was, and you say that it is, I am deeply sorry. And then it'll be up to you to either accept my apology or not. I have a proven workable method and a new happiness. What is that new happiness? The new happiness comes from very simple things. Happiness for me didn't come. I never got the dream house. I had nice houses when I, I was married for 17 years. I had nice houses, but I didn't have my dream house. But I was, I was protected from the elements. See, being in recovery doesn't necessarily mean that you will have what you want. It means for me that you will want what you already have. I'm the son of an immigrant. And I'm the son of a mentally ill woman. We never had, we never had much. I grew up in a nice neighborhood, but we lived in a little apartment. My friends had great big houses and my dad drove cars. Their older brothers and sisters drove cars newer than my dad could afford. I had to look at the world and I was jealous. These guys went here and went there and did this and did that. And they could wear Levi's. Oh, I was so jealous. I remember Levi's, they didn't go past waist size, I think 36 or 38. That was the top of the line for Levi's at that time. And I was bigger than that, even as a 10, 11 year old, 12 year old. And by the time I was 12 years old, I wanted to wear Levi's more than I wanted to breathe. I thought that was the penultimate and cool was to wear Levi's and I couldn't wear them. And many, many times in my life, I couldn't do this. I couldn't go there. I couldn't do that. I couldn't have this. I couldn't have that because of my weight and my size and my eating disorder. I have known humiliation. I have known rejection. Trust me. I have been the object of ridicule from strangers from not strangers. I was easy picking. I was the fat kid. I was easy picking. I have known physical pain and I have known loneliness. And when I read these words, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. I can assure you in my life that this is not only true, but it is getting better as time goes on. It gets better as time goes on. I'm getting healed in areas I didn't even know were broken. This is a powerful recovery. It's a powerful program. It is a program that replicates the depth of the disease. The disease doesn't come in and just make you fat or make you thin. If you're bulimic, it doesn't just do that. If you're an anorexic, it doesn't just do that. What this disease does is it comes into a person's life and it ransacks you, it vandalizes you and commits arson to anything and everything that's good and wonderful in its path. Be you black, be you white, be you gay, be you straight, tall, short, simple, smart, Jew, Gentile, it does not discriminate. This disease is an equal opportunity assassin. It wants you dead, but it will satisfy itself in watching you cry. I have cried in bed on chairs, in cars, many times, because I have been isolated by this disease over the decades in ways that were so inhumane that if you did that to me or I did that to you, the police would get involved. What do I fear more than death? I fear life. I fear performance. 
I fear going out there and having a life and being happy because if I'm happy, who's going to feel sorry for me? And today I can tell you, I am no longer addicted to that self-pity. I'm no longer addicted to that role of loser. People call me all the time and say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a chronic relapser. Last week, we had a person ask a question. Well, is there someone here that'll sponsor me if, I'm, if I chronic re, chronic re, chronically relapse? And I said, gosh, I hope not. I am not a chronic relapser today. I'm not a loser today. I'm not unacceptable in God's eyes. But here's the nugget. I'm not unacceptable in my eyes. I'm a good guy. Yes, there are some things I would have done differently for sure, but I'm a good person. I'm, I'm a good person. Yeah, I, I weighed 335 pounds as a senior in high school, 500 pounds as a sophomore in college, 600 pounds when I graduated college. Yes, I've had a size 80, 90 inch waist. Yes, I was emasculated physically by the fat on my body. Yes, I was emasculated emotionally by what had happened in my life. Yes, I've done some things that I'm ashamed of. I've written bad checks to people. I've lied when the truth would have been better. I screamed F you at my mentally ill mother more times than I care to, that I care to remember. I wasn't always a good son to my father. I wasn't always a good friend to my friends. Angry, scared, hurting physically, hurting emotionally. I didn't always do the right thing, but I've earned credibility with myself. And today I have a relationship with myself that is okay. I don't hate my guts anymore. I'm going to say that again. I don't hate my guts anymore. I see myself in the mirror and I no longer want to wretch. And that was my reality for many, 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 many years of my life. Is that a new happiness? I think so. Because when everything, I'm getting off a clamp now. When everything gets boiled down, the relationship that I have with God and the relationship that I have with myself are the relationships that no one can take away from me. Everyone else in my life comes and goes. I have some very, very dear friends that have been with me from the very beginning and we're dear friends today. My ex-wife and I, we don't have a relationship. I have a daughter, 26 years old. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, in an area called either Crown Heights or Crown Point. I think it's Crown Heights. Some of you New Yorkers will know. It's either Crown Heights or Crown Point. I'm not sure. My daughter is very orthodox. Crown here. Heights. Crown Heights. Thank you. Crown Heights. Crown Point, I guess, is in Indiana. But I'm a Chicago boy, so Crown Point, you get in your head. So... She hasn't spoken to me for 10 years. She didn't invite me to her wedding. I have a grandson who's going to be two years old. I've never met him. That hurts. But I walk around free of the pain of self-loathing. Let's continue. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Yes, I just got through telling you there are some decisions that if I had them to do over again, what do they say in the football game? Upon further review, the call is reversed. That's what they say in the football game. Upon further review, I would change some of the decisions that I made. But you know what? I'm, in, I'm at the end now. I'm 66. There's not that much time left. But you know, most of the adults that I knew as a child, not all of them, not all of them by a long shot, but most, 
were Polish and Russian Jews and German Jews and Czech Jews and Hungarian Jews and Austrian Jews that had come out of the camps. And they came out with the numbers on their left arm, on the outside. And they had seen, they had seen the worst of humanity. They went in those camps as women, men, and children. And the death was all around them. And they would say to me, live until you die. Live until you die. Now we're all going to die. We're all going to die. But did you live? And if you're a compulsive overeater like me, or you're anorexic, or you're a bulimic, if you are afflicted with this eating disorder, I don't know another way to live that's better than living in recovery so that we can look back at the end and say, I maximized the time that I had, that we expand the dash. What is the dash? On my tombstone, it will say, Harlan Grabowski, Father, Nudnik, Meshuggahner, I don't know. That'll be up to my friends. It'll say 1954 dash whatever. And the dash is where the life is lived. It's not in the 1954 or, or the whatever year I pass. There'll be life going up to the moment. But what did I do with the dash? And it says here, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Everything that happened to me from 1954 until today led me to today, led me to the recovery that I now enjoy. It led me to a point where I can now say, I understand what my role is in life. And how many people can say that? Bill Wilson, the guy behind me here, he said to be the outstretched hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it, for this I am responsible. It's called the Responsibility Pledge. I'll repeat it. To, to extend the hand of, of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it. For this, I am responsible. I have many friends who are not in these rooms. And their job in life is to make as much money as they can or to do whatever it is they can do. But our calling is a deeper, different calling. I'm not saying don't make money. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I wish I had more of it, but okay, I have what I have and my bills are paid. I have wonderful credit. To extend the heart and hand of Alcoholics Anonymous to those who urgently seek it, for this I am responsible. God's got a job for each and every one of us. How wonderfully liberating that is to know why we're here. Yes, many of us are parents. Yes, many of us are spouses. Yes, many of us are friends or siblings, or we have different roles in life. But the bottom line is we wake up in the morning with a job. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. The pain and the torture of everything I've been through led me to today, and I bless it and thank God for it. 
one turn, one alteration, and I probably wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today. And here is a place that I want to be. It's a glorious, glorious thing to be part of this recovery. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Top of 84. What is serenity to me? Serenity to me is the lack of the fear, the guilt, the shame, the anger that has permeated my life from the day I was born. Serenity to me is the freedom of looking at the people in the world and seeing them not as adversaries, not as adversaries, but of children of a God that I pray to every day. I cannot be out here espousing faith in God. I cannot be out here every day encouraging people to work a spiritual program while I'm hating most of God's children. Most of you are parents, many of you. Maybe some of you are not parents. But let me ask you a question. Whether you're a parent or not, you can appreciate what I'm about to say. You have a child or a dog or a cat or you have something, prized possession. And I want to be your friend. I want to be on good terms with you. How successful do you think I would be if I said to you, you know, I hate your dog. Your dog is ugly. You know, I hate your son. I hate your daughter. Your daughter's a witch. Your son is ugly. He's stupid. How successful do you think I would be at having a relationship with you under those terms? And yet I would ask God every day for serenity. What did George Costanza's father say in the, the show, serenity now, serenity now. But anyway, I'm asking God for serenity and I'm asking God for peace. And yet I spend most of my time telling God how much I hate this child of his, that child of his. It doesn't work that way. Serenity to me is the absence of the guilt, the shame, the remorse, the fear, the anger that I held in my heart for others who are God's children too. Serenity for me is not getting up in the morning and doing step 11 and having them say, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. That's great. That's fantastic. I'm not saying that doesn't have its place. That's wonderful. I meditate every morning. That's fantastic. Serenity for me is the absence of the things that I talked about. And in order for me to be devoid of those things, I must be working the steps and working them every day and being painstaking in my approach. And we will know peace. Peace for me comes from conducting myself in a way that is honest. And when I want to say yes, I say yes. And when I want to say no, I say no. But I don't want to be hurtful to people. Love without honesty is sentimentality. Honesty without love is brutality. So I have to temper. But peace for me is that I conduct myself in a way today that when it comes to step 11 at night, I'm not beating myself for what I should have, could have done instead. I don't want to should on myself anymore. We will know the words, comprehend the words serenity, and we will know peace.
No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. I could do a whole retreat just on that sentence alone. And because I've had a massive weight loss, it, it, it even, it, it even is, is, is more apropos. But let's just take my weight loss out of this and say, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. God is going to use your pain, your torture, your hell to help another person. And your pain, your deprivation, your shame, your guilt, the pain of your life, God will use it to help other people. Many of you have heard me tell this story many, many times. It's one of my favorite stories. There was a guy named Scott. He's dead now. He was an alcoholic and he was a drug addict. And he became, he was also a compulsive overeater, but he was a, oh, the girls loved him. Oh my God. When he was around, the girls would just swoon. Is Scott coming? Is Scott coming? Is Scott come? Oh, they would go crazy. And they'd be flipping their hair and laughing at his stupid jokes. He wasn't even that funny, but they would laugh their heads off at his stupid jokes. He was a good guy, though. And he got a part in an on-Broadway play. Think of that. He went first time he gets a part in an on-Broadway play. Is that amazing? And he meets somebody there and they get married and they decide to strike out for California. And they're going to either do commercials or movies. They're going to do whatever comes their way as long as it's in the entertainment field. And he was an alcoholic. And it was a Saturday night, rainy, rainy, miserable Saturday night in Los Angeles. And he got a call from a guy in a motel in East Los Angeles, not the high rent district. And they go out, they always go out in twos. So him and this other guy, they go out to East Los Angeles. And there's a guy sitting on the bed drinking whiskey. And they go in. And they talk to this guy for about an hour. And they finally realize he's asleep. He's sleeping. And they leave him. They covered him up. They put him in bed. They put the whiskey on the table. They covered him up. They, you know, so he would sleep. And they left. Five years later, five years later, he is speaking at an alcathon in San Diego, California, the Sheraton in Mission Bay there. And um, big meeting, Al-Anon, AA, big, big meeting. And um, it's noon. And he was the 11 to 11.50 speaker. 11.50, he stops. He's coming down from the podium. And a great big guy puts a bear hug on him and says, you're Scott. And he says, yep. And the guy says, you saved my life. Scott says, I don't know you. Who are you? He says, do you remember several years ago when you came to the motel in East LA? It was a Saturday night. And you came out there and you were talking to my friend. Scott says, yeah, but you weren't there. He says, uh, yeah, that guy died. He says, but I was hiding under the bed. And I heard every word you guys said. And I haven't had a drink since. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. Only God knows the little offhanded thing you say that will make a difference to the good of someone else's life, but it had to be based on your pain and your experience. You are locked and loaded to save lives no matter where you are today. 
but it starts by you getting in recovery. You can't help anyone until you yourself are in recovery. And many, many times I have seen people that mistake step 12 for doing their own work. And it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. I have to be in recovery. And if I'm in recovery, then I will have something to give. If I'm not in recovery, I have nothing to give. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. The guy over here, Dr. Bob, we're getting kind of into step 12 stuff and all this will be repeated when we get to step 12. He said, let's always keep it simple and let's avoid these complexities that are only of interest to the psychologist, the therapist. Let's at final, at the last, let's remember that what this boils down to is love and service. We all know what love is and we all know what service is. He said, no man looks as good as when he's bending down to help another man occupy the rung of the ladder on which he now stands. All through this book, it talks about altruism, being of maximum service to God and the people about us, that we cannot perform good deeds once in a while, we must play the Good Samaritan every day. And that service to others and service to God is the high point of my life for sure. Yes, I have a business and yes, I still work full time. And yes, I have responsibilities. I don't have little kids, but I have responsibilities just like you. But this has to come first for me. This must come first for me. Let's continue. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I have to work on that one. I am by my nature, a self-pitying liar, manipulator and overeater. I am not useless. I do the best I can to help others. Some of you I know, there's 140 of you on the line right now. Some of you I know, and some of you I know very well help others. I don't know what some of you do because I don't have that kind of contact with you. But when I help others, that feeling of self-pity does disappear. That feeling of uselessness does disappear. And the most wonderful thing I can do today is to give of myself with no expectation of any return at all whatsoever. Let's continue. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. And this theme is repeated over and over and over again in the big book. It's part of every thread that, that, that uh, makes up the tapestry of what we are. Our whole attitude and outlook will change. So, I'm sorry, self-seeking will slip away. Let's not forget that. Self-seeking will slip away. That means I don't have to manipulate you or manipulate the world so that I can get what I want. God will provide it for me. I drive a beautiful car. I have a decent house. Is this my dream house? No. But this house keeps me cool in the summertime, warm in the wintertime dry when it's raining and it's mine. Now I'd have to pay my mortgage or it won't be mine for long, but you get the idea. And I have a car. It's pretty new. It's a, it's like a year old. I bought it like, uh, no, it's like, yeah, a year old now. I don't drive that much, but I treated myself. I said, this may be the last car I ever buy. No, well, I don't know. Maybe this may be it. I have what I need. Remember that recovery is not having what you want. 
It's wanting what you have. And I have to do that gratitude list every day. Self-seeking will slip away. God will provide. If I'm not agnostic to the point where I doubt him, and I have those pockets of agnosticism, agnostics are not universally or unilaterally agnostic. But what I do know is that for me, I know that God will relieve my eating disorder, but will he find me a life's companion? Will he find me a wife or a girlfriend? Sometimes I doubt it. And I get angry at myself for doubting him. So that's stuff I have to work on. That's stuff I have to work on every day. Just like you, recovery is not a destination. It's a journey. And it's a journey not to be missed. It is a glorious journey. It is a wonderful journey. If I had a pill here that I could give you that would cure you of this, I would throw it in the toilet. I wouldn't want to cheat you out of this magnificent, God-blessed journey. I want you to stand. And I want you to stand in the sunlight of the spirit and know that you did a beautiful job. I would put that pill in the toilet. So many times, so many times, I focus on the mountains in front of me and say, how am I ever going to get across them? And I forget the mountains in my past that I've already, I've already overcome with God's help. And that if God was there for me three mountains ago and 20 mountains ago and 75 mountains ago, he'll be with me on the rest of the journey. He's not going to abandon me. Self-seeking will slip away. Self-seeking is the action I take to get people to stick to my selfish script. That's what self-seeking is. And I don't have to do that anymore. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. I don't have to get up in the morning and wonder and beg God, who's going to take care of me? And can I have this? And can I have that? And how come he got this, but I didn't get that? And how come he gets to go there and he's got a wife and he's got eight grandchildren and he's this and she's that and they do. I don't have to do that anymore. And that's an exhausting way to live. It's an exhausting way to live. I am free. I am energized because my attitude and outlook upon life changes every day that I do the steps. You see those guys behind me? Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob? They never got their dream house either. They never became what it was they originally set out to become. And yet they will live forever. They will affect 20,000 generations in the future of unborn alcoholics, drug addicts, gamblers, compulsive overeaters, anorexics, bulimics, love addicts, sex addicts, you name it, narcotics addicts. They will have affected people for 100,000 years into the future with what they've done. So can you. Maybe not to that extent, but so can you. You can make a difference. You have the ability to make a difference. Maybe you were raped. Maybe you were molested. Maybe you grew up in a chaotic, alcoholic, drug-addicted family of people who probably didn't, didn't love you as much as they should have or could have. Maybe you were wealthy. Maybe you had all the material possessions, but you are a compulsive overeater anyway. Your reality, your truth, your life 
can save the lives of others. It says in the Old Testament, you save one life, you save the world. Somebody save my dad's life. My dad made it to the Baltic Sea with no ticket to get on the ship going to America. He was 14 years old. He had just witnessed the murder of his entire family. Everybody that he knew and loved, everybody that he counted on was slaughtered. And for what reason? For what reason? And a guy took pity on him and led him on the ship. He lifted the rope and said, go ahead. If he didn't lift that rope and let my dad on the ship, I wouldn't be here now. You can lift the rope. You have the power to lift the rope for somebody who is suffering and somebody who is dying. You can set them free. You have the power. These promises will come true if we are painstaking about this phase, what phase, the, the, this step phase of our development. Next week, we're gonna pick it up from fear of people. And I'm gonna write that down. And what 